have uh, shaped me as a, a preacher, a communicator of God's Word more uh, than your pastor. And uh, so, so for that, I'm, I'm grateful. This morning, I'm going to be preaching from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you would please rise for the reading of God's Word. This passage is found on page 981 there in your pew Bibles. From Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippi, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You can be seated as we pray. God, we pray that your word would conform us today. God, as we look to the truth of your word, pray that you would minister to our hearts through your spirit, that we would all learn from this inspired text what it is that you would have us learn. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All throughout the book of Philippians... Paul is calling on believers in Christ to live like Christ. In this verse, he invites genuine believers to partake in the righteousness of God through faith in Christ alone. My role at First Baptist Church in Lindale is uh, in youth ministry. I've served in, in youth ministry in one capacity for another for almost 20 years, uh, nine of those years now in, uh, in that particular church. Probably on a, a monthly basis, if not a, a weekly basis, 
I have students who will come into my office and, and question me uh, uh, surrounding issues regarding their salvation. It's a fairly common thing in our context for children to express faith in Christ at a young age and be baptized at a young age. And sometimes this leaves older students with uh, a little bit of a question. It's very often that I have students come into my office and, and ask a question that sounds something similar to this. I went forward in the church. I walked down front in the church when I was a, a child. I was baptized. But I'm not sure that I really fully understood the magnitude or the nature of the decision I made. And now I'm left questioning whether I truly am a believer in Jesus Christ. And oftentimes in the church, when people are questioning their faith, people point to something as some sort of an indicator that they might have genuine faith. Very oftentimes they're encouraged to look back to a specific point. Remember that time when you expressed faith in Christ? Was it real? If it was real in that moment, then don't worry Were you emotional in that moment? If you were emotional in that moment, then maybe you shouldn't worry. Or oftentimes when people who have been in the church for a while and are experiencing a crisis of faith or questioning their faith, they go forward and someone will point them to moralism as an evidence of the genuineness of their faith. Well, you do good things, right? You give to the church, You support charities. So clearly, your heart has been transformed. Don't worry, you're good because you are moral. Or oftentimes, they just point to their connection to church in general. Well, clearly, you have nothing to worry about with regards to your salvation because you grew up in church. You've been going to church your whole life. So there's nothing to worry about. I think a better question to ask one who is questioning the the nature of their salvation, and I think one that the Scriptures affirm, is this. What is the true position of your heart right now? Paul, in this passage, gives the believers in Philippi two commands followed by three characteristics of genuine faith that I think present a much better reality by which people should gauge what their heart belongs to. This is true faith in Christ evidences itself in this way. He commands the believers in the church to rejoice in the Lord. He commands them to exercise spiritual discernment, and then he gives three evidences or characteristics of those who possess genuine saving faith in Christ. He says, those who are in Christ do three things. There are three unique characteristics that believers in Christ exhibit. They worship in the Spirit, they glory in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Paul opens this passage with a reminder of something that he previously taught the church in this book. He opens this passage by commanding them or encouraging them pastorally to rejoice 
in the Lord, even in the face of suffering. In chapter 1 of this book, we're informed that the church in Philippi was enduring the season of suffering. Paul relates the suffering of the church in this chapter to his own suffering for the sake of the gospel. He writes this in Philippians 1, 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything in anything by your opponents. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says in chapter 1, it has been granted to you as a, a grace that you should suffer the sake of Christ. And Paul's command to the church in the face of suffering was to rejoice. You know, every book of the Bible, all throughout the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we are given this command, this encouragement as the covenant people of God to rejoice even in the face of suffering. It's been a difficult time for us as Texans to be in Canada. There is much suffering going on in our home state, just 90 miles from where we live in Dallas. There is tremendous suffering in all throughout the states. There is suffering. I was speaking with someone from your congregation today who said much of the same kinds of suffering are going on in Canada today. It's a very common theme in the church as we look to the world around us and we see things that from our perspective seem to be diminishing. The family being eroded Christian morality being forsaken. Things that for generations the church has held dear to that seem to be eroding. The very natural response to that is fear, anxiety. There's a temptation to withdraw, to pull back. For the church to kind of go within itself. But that's antithetical to the message of the Scriptures. The charge to the church in Philippi in response to their suffering was rejoice. This is a suffering that Paul says, I myself am well acquainted with. If you remember, his writing of this book is from a place of imprisonment. He's incarcerated for the sake of the gospel. And he's writing to the church to encourage them in their suffering, even in the face of his own suffering. You should rejoice and count it as a grace that God has granted it to you to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is why 
This faith in Christ is so freeing. We can rejoice in all situations, knowing that our sovereign God who is in heaven is in perfect control. He commands the church the opening of this passage to rejoice. The second command that Paul gives the person of genuine faith, and he commands the church, is to exercise spiritual discernment. Look with me at verse 2 of our passage in chapter 3 of Philippians. He gives this threefold charge to the church, referring to the same groups of, group of people. He says this in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Use a strong language here to condemn those who oppose the true gospel. He refers to them as dogs. In fact, the word that Paul used that's translated as dogs is the Greek word kuon, which is not used for household pets. It's a word for wild dogs. Dogs who travel in packs and prey on other weak animals. Dogs who feast at the garbage dumps. It's a dog that ref- it's a word that refers to my neighbor's dogs back home in Texas, who routinely knock our trash cans over to feast on our rubbish. It's a word that the Jews used in reference to the Gentiles. These aren't cute and lovable dogs. They're filthy and dangerous. He then goes on to call them evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. So what's the great offense of these filthy dogs? And what is this great evil that they are conducting within the church? They're encouraging the church to participate in a Jewish practice that was commanded by God as a sign of the covenant. They're advocating for circumcision for all believers in Jesus Christ. Paul is condemning the Judaizers who believed and taught that in order to participate in the new covenant of grace through Christ, they must first accept the sign of the old covenant, which is circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that was made between God and Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. So what's the big deal? Why would Paul, who was circumcised as a Jew, condemn something that both he and the Lord Jesus had participated in? And why isn't this just something else that the church can embrace? It's just kind of your way of doing things and our way of doing things. Why is it so significant and why is Paul so divisive is to call people within the church filthy dogs? evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. They weren't denying the divinity of Christ or rejecting the doctrine of atonement. They weren't even rejecting the notion that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. We're simply calling on Christians to return to a practice that God had previously commanded His people. And yet Paul calls them filthy dogs evildoers. It sounds harsh to us. 
in our modern context of political correctness and aversion to divisive language, Paul's command to look out for the dogs, calling them evildoers who mutilate the flesh, seems harsh, but it's absolutely warranted. Any change to the gospel is a distortion of it. And a distorted gospel, whether one is adding to it or taking away from it, renders the gospel powerless to save. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is a verse that probably many of you have committed to memory. He says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believes. This is true. If this specific message of reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God through Jesus Christ, if this message is the power of God for salvation, when we alter the message, we render God powerless to save. We've stripped God of His power to save. The gospel is the means by which God saves people. And if you add to this message or take away from it, you've changed it. And the best you can hope for with a false gospel is false converts. Paul goes even further in Galatians 1. He says this with regards to those in the church who were being led astray by the Judaizers who were adding to the requirements for salvation. He says this, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. Paul says, if we come back in our apostolic ministry and and, and I present to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that we preached, let me be accursed. If an angel from God appears to the church and presents a gospel contrary to the one we first delivered, let him be accursed. It's not comfortable for a pastor to stand and publicly point out those who call themselves Christian, but whose message is false and is leading the church astray. But I could argue that based on the way that Paul deals with false teachers, as well as based on the specific qualifications for pastor elders that are laid out in Timothy and Titus, there may be nothing more pastoral that your pastor could do and to condemn those whose desire is to lead the church into false thinking. 
This is especially true when it comes to those who are seeking to distort the gospel. Listen to Titus 1 in the very qualifications for one who would serve as an elder or pastor or overseer in the church. In Titus 1.9 it says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give us instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. It is perhaps the most pastoral thing that I could do for those that God has given me care over to point out in the church those whose desire is to lead them away or astray. Paul says in response to those who are distorting the gospel for advocating circumcision, he says this, we are the circumcision. In verse 3, he's implying that those who are participating in circumcision out of some sense of duty or tradition are not honoring God but themselves. Some translations make an even stronger connection here by saying, look out for the false circumcision. And immediately following it up in verse 3 by stating, we are the true circumcision. Circumcision, like baptism, was intended to be an an outward sign of an internal spiritual reality. However, by Paul's time, there was little spiritual significance to the practice. The vast majority of the Jews had morphed into a focus primarily on this outward physical appearance. And any external ritualistic ceremony is meaningless if it does not reflect a transformed heart. Paul begins verse 3 by stating, we are the true circumcision. It's a bold statement. He's declaring that those of us who hold to the pure doctrine of Christianity, to a pure gospel, we are the true people of God's covenant, not those who are consumed with outward and ritual ceremony. He goes on to say that those who are truly the people of God worship in the Spirit. He gives several characteristics or evidences of people who are of genuine faith. Those who are of the true circumcision. Paul David Tripp says in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, human beings are by their very nature worshipers. He says worship is not something we do, it defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. He says, everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. What's significant about this is not that true believers are worshipers, but that those who are truly of God worship by the Spirit. That for those of us who are in Christ, our worship of God originates not of our flesh, but by the very Spirit of God which indwells us. That's why non-Christians cannot worship. Worship offerings are not acceptable to God. Look at what Jesus had to say to the Samaritan woman who questioned Him about the proper place of worship. In John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. For Salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Listen, worship that is rooted in a desire for selfish gain or in tradition or in guilt or in fear is not true worship of the one true God. It is God Himself who enables us to worship Him through the Spirit which He gives to us. That's why true worship is rooted in Spirit. In fact, Romans 8, 26 tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Paul says, For we do not even know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Authentic Christian life is not simply marked by church attendance, by performing external religious duties, but by a lifestyle of worship by the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul instructs the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, this is how you worship in the Spirit. The concept of sacrifice was not foreign to them, but sacrifice involved death. And in Romans 12, Paul is calling on believers in Jesus Christ to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. Daily submitting our own will, our very lives, to the will of God as an act of sacrifice. And he says, this is how you worship in spirit. The second point that Paul makes in verse 3 is that Genuine believers are marked as those who glory in Christ. To glory in something is to boast with joy about what someone is most proud of. Boasting is a a common theme of Paul's in the New Testament. In fact, he makes reference to boasting 35 times in his letters. I want to tell you, if there was a hall of fame for boasting... My grandpa would be in it. Loved my grandpa dearly. When he was alive, you could tell what was most important to him within the first five minutes of a conversation with him. My grandfather was a lineman for Oklahoma Gas and Electric. He spent his entire career installing and servicing uh, electric highline wires in rural Oklahoma. And he loved to tell stories which may or may not have been true about dodging tornadoes while trying to install high lines and actually to be a part of that generation that was able to deliver electricity to rural Oklahoma and and doing so in some, some remarkably difficult conditions. He also loved to tell stories of growing up in the 30s and 40s in eastern Oklahoma hunting and fishing on the Vertigris River. But he had a bumper sticker on the front of his truck that said this, Let me tell you about my grandkids. He loved to brag on his grandkids because they were of the utmost importance to him. And whether it was the chess club or the choir or the football team, he was proud of his grandkids. I suspect that many of you operate in this same capacity. 
Paul here tells us that genuine Christians glory in Christ. Because if you've come to a realization of the fact that you were dead in your sin and an enemy of God, but through Jesus Christ you have been given new life and been reconciled to God, then there is nothing that's more important to you. This is the truth that we as believers in Jesus Christ should glory in. By way of contrast, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes of those who boast according to the flesh, believing that their religious activity will bring them favor by God. The rest of Ephesians 2, which I alluded to earlier, tells us that salvation is by grace alone through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast according to the flesh. Paul gives one final characteristic, which he will unpack with great detail, of those who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. He says they put no confidence in the flesh. This, after all, goes hand in hand with glorying in Christ. That the more rightly we see the glory of Christ, the more obvious the sin, sinful condition of man apart from Him becomes. I was preparing to preach this message. Couldn't escape the fact that just a few weeks ago, we mourned the loss and celebrated the life of one of the great sports icons of our generation, Muhammad Ali. Ali once said, if you ever dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. (laughs) Another time he was quoted as saying this, I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I'm the king of the world. I'm a bad man. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. Yet another time he was giving advice to a group of youngsters and he says, it's lack of faith that makes people afraid of meeting challenges. And I always believed in myself. Ali was a great man who contributed much to sport and society, but it seems that his confidence was in himself. In the Scriptures, flesh represents man's fallen, unredeemed nature. It pictures human ability apart from God. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone respond to the Gospel in a way that evidences that their faith is in Christ and not in themselves. That they can do nothing to please God on their own. So it's a distinguishing characteristic of genuine Christians, those of the true circumcision, that they do not walk according to the flesh. Paul spends the next seven verses presenting what is perhaps the most dramatic and compelling salvation testimony in the New Testament. He says this, listen, if ever there was anyone who was justified to put confidence in their own flesh, it was me. He's telling the Philippians, I was the king of religious activity. I was the best. 
He says this in verses 4, 5, and 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was the best, Paul said. If anyone could earn salvation by their activity, it was me. But none of these things can save you. Salvation has nothing to do with your race. Salvation has nothing to do with your position in the church. Salvation is not because of your tradition. It's not because of your sincerity. And salvation is certainly not because of your legalistic activity. Sinful men have access to the saving grace of God by faith in Christ alone. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing more. It's a work of the enemy that we have this constant temptation to distort this message by adding to it or taking away from it. That's why Paul calls those whose desire is to change the message, to alter it by adding to it a requirement. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilating their flesh, thinking that somehow it will earn them favor with God, but it only evidences them as men who should be rejected. When we change the message of the gospel, we're not doing the work of God. We're doing the work of the enemy by preventing people from entering into the saving grace of God by faith in Christ alone. It is the gospel that God uses to transform hearts. He goes on to say that for the sake of knowing Christ, he was willing to abandon everything in life that he had previously placed confidence in. The very things in life that he had gloried in, the very things in life that he had placed his confidence in, he's abandoned. In fact, counted them as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. That is perhaps the clearest description that we see in the New Testament of one who truly grasps the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What was Paul's great prize? What was his hope? What was his aim in doing this? He tells us, was not fame? Although he achieved that, we're still talking about him. It wasn't power in the church, although he achieved that. We're still reading and proclaiming his apostolic authority. It wasn't even the reward of participating in the inheritance of Christ, which he achieved as well. No, he says it was this. This was the great goal. This was the great hope. This is the great reward for Paul. To know Christ 
and to share in his sufferings. Earlier in the book, Paul was wrestling with his own mortality. Having this internal struggle. Which is better? To live and continue to boldly proclaim the gospel? Or to die and fully be united with Christ? And his conclusion was this. I don't know. Seems like God has left me here for a purpose, but he says this. All I want to do is honor Christ either in my life or my death. For to me, to to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Just as he wanted to honor Christ either in life or death, he viewed suffering as an opportunity for greater fellowship with Christ. Paul came to a place in his life where he joyfully surrendered all of his accomplishments, his spiritual and ethnic privileges, even his very identity, he surrendered to Christ. In fact, he counted them as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. The question I would love for you to ponder and consider in your own hearts this morning is this. In what have you placed your confidence? Have you placed your confidence in your standing in this church? In your external religious activity? In your morality? In some event that happened at some distant point in the future? Is your confidence in the work of Christ alone. The gospel of Jesus Christ which transforms us. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, The more empty I am, the more room there is for my master. The more I lack, the more he will give me. The question today is, can you echo this prayer in, my own, in your own life by placing no confidence in the flesh, evidencing that you are of genuine belief, not based on something external, but by worshiping in the Spirit, by glorying in Christ alone, and by placing no confidence in the flesh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we love you. Lord, I pray that in all of our hearts we would ponder these questions and Lord, that you would reveal to us if there are external things that we have placed our confidence in. God, I pray that our own great desire would be to place our confidence in Christ alone, not looking to our heritage, not looking to our prominence within the church or our religious activity or morality to save us, that we would empty ourselves of us, place our full faith and confidence in Christ alone. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.